You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hi, the Heard Tell Show. You feel that? Coming up your spine, kind of tingling a little bit, like the cold, cold hand on the back of your neck. No, it's not death or a spectrum. That's just Monday, but it's okay. We're going to get through it together. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining Heard Tell on this May the 9th year of our Lord. 2022 continues to roll along. Hope you had a great weekend. Hope you had a good Mother's Day and that you're doing well. Time to get back to work, though, and we got plenty to do. Turning down the noise of the news cycle on a couple different stories couple things going on in the world. Uh, unfortunately, the most predictable story in the world from last fall's fall of Afghanistan back to the Taliban has come true, and restrictions on women and human rights abuses are abounding. We will talk about that story in just a little bit. Also, uh, ending the program, we always end on a good note. Two guys are singing in the subway over in Ukraine. Usually not that big a deal. People sing in the subway all the time, but when it's uh, the rock band U2, People tend to pay a little bit more attention. Also, unfortunately, one of those stories that we have to cover that we really shouldn't because human beings shouldn't be this despicable. I'm going to talk a little bit about discernment. We spend a lot of time talking about charity work and people doing good things. This is the case of somebody who did a bad thing, uh, going to prison for faking a cancer diagnosis to get donations. We'll touch in on that story as well. Great guest today, recurring guest, one of our favorites, Jericho Hill. I'm going to talk some economics today. Uh, he's going to explain it to me like I'm five, uh, things like the new inflation numbers, like the new GDP numbers, all this data, all this math stuff that I'm not great at. What does it mean? Because we continue to have conflicting things in the economy where some numbers look great, other numbers look bad. What does it all mean? Jericho Hill on the program today talking economics. But first, uh, back to the topic du jour that we just can't get away from in the news media right now. Abortion is still on everybody's mind ever since the Roe v. Wade uh, Alito draft, everybody's calling it, uh, came out in the press. They call it a leak. We've already covered. It's not a leak. No such thing as a leak. Somebody wanted it out. I'm sure we'll find out in due course who it is. But it's interesting. Uh, Last week, I was actually invited on to Times Radio. That's the Times of London, uh, one of the most influential papers in the world, their radio branch that does their media content. And I was doing an interview for them, talking to our UK friends, trying to explain 
why this is such a big deal to them. And one of the questions I got asked right off the bat by Kayla McDonald, who's great, by the way, go follow him. They do great work over there. Uh, first thing he asked me, he goes, this is going to bring out protests on both sides, isn't it? And it has. No sooner than the news broke, then people started showing up at the Supreme Court and they had to put up extra barricades and things like this. And now we have people protesting near the justices' homes in Maryland. The rhetoric online is getting louder and louder, especially as people that are politicians and office holders tend to go to more extreme things to try to gin up things in what is already a very contentious election year. So the rhetoric's cranked up, passions are cranked up, people are on edge. And like I was explaining to our UK friends, this isn't just happening in a vacuum. This is over 40 years of culture and politics that have been well-tuned to drive emotion on this topic all coming to a head. There's a lot of cross streams when we talk about abortion. There's a lot of things that intermesh, things like faith, things like science, things like medicine, things like privacy, the law, legislation. What And at the core of it, what does it mean to be human? When does life even start? What is life? These are very tough questions. And instead of digging into them in a responsible manner with some grown folk talk, we're using buzzwords and slinging invective at each other. That's kind of what we do, so we can't bemoan it. We just need to figure out a way to get through it. So plenty of people are taking to the streets and protesting, both sides. And the rhetoric is getting very heated on all sides. But let's back up and slow down just for a second on what is and isn't a protest, because already folks are comparing them. Well, these protests did this and these protests did not. This was okay. This was not. Uh, Let's just cut through the noise of that right now. You have a right to protest whatever you want to protest. You have a right to protest in the streets. And to a certain point, legally, you have a right to be a complete nuisance to the people you are protesting against. You can be loud. You can be disruptive. You can irritate. You can agitate. There's a lot of gray area in how far you can push a protest. But there's also some real good hard and fast lines that we all need to adhere to. If you do anything that is violent, if you start fighting with police officers, if you start damaging personal property, if you start invading personal property, if you start invading governmental property, if you do any of those things, you're no longer protesting. Now you're breaking the law. I don't care what your cause for breaking the law is. That's what you're doing. Now, see, if we just hold that standard and apply it equally, we can get through a lot of this mess that's going to be coming. I don't care which side you're on and which part of the debate you're adhering to. You're not allowed to start doing violence. Nothing the Supreme Court did justifies you doing violence. It doesn't justify you damaging property. It doesn't justify you hurting other people and or threatening to do so for that matter. But people are going to get all up in their feels and they're going to go, well, it was okay because so-and-so somewhere did it before. No, it's not. Again, don't get violent. Don't damage property. Don't hurt people. That's pretty simple stuff. Doesn't matter why, just don't do it. But this is what politics and culture does to us, especially when we cross almost all the streams of culture and politics that have been purposely built up and firing people up for years and years and years like abortion hats. Folks are going to lose their minds. And there's going to be a lot of bad faith actors that are trying to get people to lose their minds on purpose. You can't do it. Again, to repeat myself, the lines here are really, really clear. Protest. You can make a nuisance of yourself. You can name call. You can yell, scream, holler, whatever you want to do. You can't damage property and you can't hurt people. That's always wrong. It's never right and it's never okay. 
And if you've convinced yourself that it is in some form or fashion, you've started to drink the Kool-Aid of the bad faith actors who have told you that's the way to get things done. It's not. It's still something that has to be done at the ballot box and legislatively and in the courtroom. And even and especially if your current side is on the downswing and not having it go your way, that means you need to dig in and go harder. I know people are going to get real mad at that and I'm going to start getting the hate mail. Well, it's unfair. The system's rigged. I get all that. You still don't get to do violence and you still don't get to do damage to people and you don't get to do damage to yourself. I don't know where this is all going to go. I suspect after 40 years of us debating abortion, we're going to just turn around, start this cycle all over again and debate it for the next 40 years. So keep your bearing. Don't break the law. Don't hurt people. Don't damage stuff. That's pretty simple stuff. You put enough buzzwords on it, you can convince people that it's okay to do it. We're not going to do that. We're going to keep calling it out for what it is. Keep yourself correct, whether you're inside, outside, in the streets, or on your social media. You can do it. I got faith in you. Keep your bearing, folks. We have some dark days ahead with a lot of controversy, and nobody's going to be served by losing their head and damaging and destroying and hurting We've got enough hurt as it is. It's what got us in this mess in the first place. More hurt tell right after this. Welcome back to Hurt Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have on this Monday, your time. We sure appreciate it. Um, unfortunately, one of the most predictable stories that we've covered before on Hertel. We don't like to do drive-by stories where we just hit something and then forget about it. We try to come back and touch on things. Uh, Over in Afghanistan, what was pretty much predictable from the moment that the Taliban retook the country has now occurred. Uh, From France24.com, French news agency, uh, the Taliban on Saturday uh, imposed one of the harshest restrictions on Afghan women since seizing power, ordering them to all wear the full color for full covering burqa in public at all times. The militants took back of the country in August of last year, promising a softer role that their last stint in power between 1996 and 2001, which was a dom- dominated by human rights abuses. We all knew that was BS from the go anyway, but they had already imposed a slew of restrictions on women, banning them from any jobs, secondary education, and from traveling alone outside of their cities or Afghanistan on Saturday. Afghanistan's supreme leader and Taliban chief, um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name because he's a despicable human being, screw him, announced a strict dress code for women when they are in public. They should wear a head-to-toe burqa, as is traditional and respectful, he decreed in his name released by Taliban authorities in a ceremony in Kabul. Imagine having a ceremony where you basically tell women that they're not allowed to go out in public unless they're completely covered up. That, that calls for a ceremony, of course. Ridiculous. Those women who are not too old or young must cover their face except their eyes as per Sharia directives in order to avoid provocation when meeting men who are not um, Maram, the adult close male relatives. The order was expected to spark a flurry of condemnations abroad, which that and 595 will get you a coffee at Starbucks. Many in the international community want humanitarian aid for Afghanistan and recognition of the Taliban government to be linked to the restoration of women's rights. The decree also said that if women had no important work outside, it was better for them to stay at home. During their first regime, the Taliban had made the burqa compulsory for women. Since their return to power, their feared ministry for promotion of virtue and prevention of vice. Let's pause here for a second. 
Notice how the prevention of vice is always on the women and never on the men to control themselves. Has issued several guidelines on what women should wear, but Saturday's edict was the first such national order. The hardline Islamists triggered an international outrage in March when they ordered secondary schools for girls closed to shut just hours after reopening them for the first time since they seized power. Officials have never justified the ban, apart from saying the education of girls must be in according to, quote, Islamic principles. That ban was also issued by the same leader. According to several Taliban officials, women have been ordered to visit parks in the capital on separate days from men. Some Afghan women initially pushed back strongly, holding small demonstrations and protests. But the Taliban has now cracked down on these unsanctioned rallies and rounded up the ringleaders, holding them incommunicado while denying they have been detained. God help them. In the 20 years between the Af- Taliban's two reigns, girls were allowed to go to school and women were able to seek employment in all sectors throughout the country, remain socially conservative. In a deeply conservative and patriarchal Afghanistan, many women already wear the burqa in the rural areas. You remember those awful images back in August when we were trying to evacuate people from uh, Afghanistan. Why would they try to crowd on airplanes? Why would they throw their babies up onto the walls to soldiers to try to get them out? Why were people hanging and falling off the aircraft? This is why. Everybody knew what was coming. Now, we're not going to relitigate all of the failures of the 20 years that America spent in Afghanistan. We could spend a long, long time, and we will, trying to rehash and understand and try to learn the lessons and the failures there. One thing that came out of that, though, there was some rhetoric from folks in the country very derisively saying, oh, well, that was all, we did all that just so girls could go to school. That's a worthy cause. You can argue how many American lives were necessary to be put on the line for Afghanistan women to go to school. But women rights, girls going to school, women not being treated as property, those are always values that America should stand up for. And that derisive rhetoric, oh, so they couldn't go to school? That meets reality now, and it's a harsh, ugly reality. Yes, it's worth it to fight against evil people in the world who treat women like this. Shame we made a hash of it. More hurt tell right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Ah, we're back to her tell show. Okay, let's talk some economy. That means we got to bring in one of these economist people. And this is the one we have on quite a bit. Our buddy Jericho Hill has returned. He works for one of those four-letter, not three-letter uh, government organizations. Uh, that's because all the other four-letter words were taken, so they go to acronyms. Uh, Jericho much. Hill, how are you, my friend? 
uh, just recovering from a cold and feeling pretty good now. I see you got the killer bees on your shirt there. Uh, that w- that would be great if our government actually did budgets, but uh, that it would be. But you know, we we haven't done budgets for several decades now, and we probably won't do budgets for several decades. It's more about uh, it's more about your personal budget is what I what I'm advocating. You need to update that for the uh, current parlance and back that budget up. Maybe would be a good shirt. So. That, that might be a retro shirt, but okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, we've got, once again, we have what looks on the surface to be conflicting economic information. We're in this really weird thing where we have a growing economy coming out yep. of the pandemic, but all the indicators that we usually use say things are awful. But at the same time, things aren't really awful to people other than gas prices and inflation and things like this. The GDP number did the same thing. Everybody thinks it's terrible and everybody thinks it's no big deal. Is it one, the other, or somewhere in the middle? So look, you have two hands as an economist. So there's always one, one hand and on the other. So let me demystify this, this, this GDP. So first off, what happened? Um, GDP shrank by 1.4% at an annualized rate. Now, again, that's taking the quarter's growth or not growth and putting that out for a whole calendar year, right? Um, and expectations were that it was going to be, you know, um, it was going to grow at a, at a slow rate. So the fact that it was negative, right, it was kind of a big miss. And so everyone's trying to figure out what exactly happened here. So, so look, it's a bad number, right, the slowing economy. The first thing that I want to say about this, though, is if, if you're a non-economist, the fact that I, one fact I want you to have is Quarter one of any year is historically the lowest growth quarter. That is without fail. I can go back three decades and it's just a pattern that holds up. So even, you know, there's there's probably, you know, reasons why quarter one is always weaker compared to say quarter four typically, right? Part of that might be because of companies in normal years buying up inventory in quarter four for the Christmas shopping season and them not buying inventory in quarter one because they have a bunch of crap they got to get rid of. Okay. So we actually see this in the data. Um, We see that inventory um, was not filled up like it had been. Uh, In fact, inventory contributed to um, almost a full percentage point. Um, So you could back it out and basically GDP growth would have been about a negative 0.5 instead of negative 1.4 annualized if we didn't have this inventory thing. Um, So that's the first thing that I want to get out of the way is quarter one's pretty much always bad for the year. Uh, It's almost always driven by inventory. um, And here again, it's driven by inventory. So that that's, that's one thing that I want to say. Um, The, the second thing, you know, that, that, that we see is, um, one of the missing one of the misses was people's consumption. We expected it to grow by three and a half percent. It rose by point by two point seven percent. So I think we can sort of now say, look, I told you that if we if we actually had the inventory thing sort out, we'd be at negative point five. And then if consumption rose the way we thought it was going to, we would have been positive point two or point three percent. It was still a bad number, right? This is still bad. But, you know, we can sort of get to figuring that out. One thing I want to say is there's a lot of articles that go into how, like, net exports contributed to this. Um, this is an accounting identity in, in econ. Um, and so if you're blaming the low, the, the bad GDP number on, on exports or net exports or imports, 
uh, you don't understand basic math. Um, so just ignore all takes that, that deal with that. Um, so so that that's sort of like what's happened now. Um, one of the things I think I've been consistent in criticizing the Biden administration about is not being explicit about the trade-off that the, they and their partners in Congress uh, made when, uh, they, when all these sort of uh, COVID relief plans were enacted. The choice set that should have been clearly articulated to the American public that was not was, we're going to protect jobs and we're going to get unemployment down fast so that people go back to work because we know that if people stay out of work a very long time, it is very, very bad, not, not just for the individual workers, but for families, people lose skills, the economy suffers and the growth of the nation suffers in the long term. That is a bad outcome. So we're going to make the choice to put policies into place that are get people back to work far sooner than expected. And in fact, you know, if you look at what economists were expecting for when employment would get back to sort of quote normal levels before COVID, we were expecting 2024. We're already blown past that in the first quarter of 2021, um, where we're actually down to 3.5% unemployment uh, with our, our preferred method of, of calculating it. So that's great. That's a fantastic policy win. The cost was that prices would run hot. And I was, like many economists, expecting the price running hot to last for just a very short while. We were wrong about that. I was wrong about that. You need to own your mistakes. Uh, prices are going to run hot for a little bit longer. We are seeing positive signs that we hit the peak of the price increases in the last two or three months. We're seeing a lot more signs that we're going to start to see deceleration of price growth going into this year. Probably not enough to help the Dems. Um, but, you know, we were wrong about that. But, like, that's the choice. That, so people are being hurt by high gas prices. People are being hurt by housing costs rising so high, unless you already own your house, which two-thirds of Americans do, so you're on a fixed-rate mortgage, so it doesn't really matter um, unless your property taxes went up like crazy, but, you know, that's another story for another day. Um, you know, so that's sort of the, the basic nutshell that I think I would say is, look, quarter one was bad. I expect it to be bad. It's not as bad as it looks, but it's still bad. You know, we made the trade-off, right, to, to basically juice, to get unemployment back. We're going to have high inflation. Now we're entering the danger zone. And this is where I'll let Andrew come back with something because the danger zone is we're driving a car, we're in, we're, we're in behind a tractor trailer that's breaking, and we have an idiot on the cell phone on the car behind us. How quickly do we tap our brakes? Because we don't want to hit the truck. This is what the Fed's trying to do. We don't want to hit the truck because that's bad. We also don't want to have the idiot on the cell phone hit us from behind. So the Fed's trying to slow down the, the price growth, pull the economy back a little bit without losing the employment gains that we've had. And this is a very delicate tightrope that's gonna sort of be a dance for the next couple of months. Historically speaking, the Fed's kind of struggled at this. Yeah, and the thing we really don't wanna do is get rear-ended up underneath the truck and get the worst of both. Um, let me there ask you, you this, exactly. since, we're, since we're talking prices, let's talk supply side for just a second. I was sitting behind a train yesterday, I was watching all those containers go by, the double stacked on the train. Um, we talked a lot about supply side stuff. We talked about a, a supply side inflationary curve back during the pandemic. We're moved on from that a little bit. What's the data saying about that? Is that lingering into what's going on now or did it wash out? And now we're dealing with more of the oncoming traffic, as you said, as opposed to the rear ending part. 
So we still have supply chain issues that are still driving up some of these, these the challenges. We can still see that the price of a lumber is exceedingly elevated. And we know the price of some stuff coming from Asia is still elevated and we still have backlogs. So, you know, uh, the data that we're seeing is showing that those effects are, are, are mediating. They're, they're getting, you know, less bad over time but they're not coming down as fast as we would hope. And this is part of the problem and as we want. And part of it is because, you know, this isn't, you know, COVID was an international event. And as much as we want to criticize the U.S. policy response under both Trump and Biden, um, and sort of also the sort of the, the response of the American public, um, compared to uh, a lot of other countries in the world, particularly in Asia, um, in some of the Asian countries, some Asian countries did great, but some of the Asian countries where we get a lot of our imports from, uh, not so great. Uh, take up of vaccines is not as good as what we have here. So, so another it's getting great, better. Another it's getting better. Thing. It's getting better, but it's getting better slower than we would expect. Much like the cold that I had took a lot longer than I wanted for it to, for me to get over it. Yeah. It's interesting. I had a fence quoted from my backyard and they won't even quote you wood fencing right now. They said nobody can afford it anyway, and it would take us too long to get it. So we don't even bother quoting it right now. That's how bad the wood is. I, I'm trying to build an addition, a, 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 an ADU, accessory dwelling unit, um, on, on my property. Uh, and, you know, we're having the architect drop the plans now. Um, I'm not anticipating starting construction on that until maybe mid-next year. Wow. Yeah, it's a mess. Uh, talking to Jericho Hill, our economist friend. Uh, let's talk about one other item you kind of you mentioned in there and kind of skirted by it for just a second, though. Inflation and prices, everybody thinks they're necessarily coupled together, but that's not exactly the truth. They're not exactly dead set together. It, it, talk about the relationship there with the prices a consumer sees on the shelves and inflation, because there is some lag there. There's some waves to those sorts of things. Talk about that, because everybody just assumes, well, well inflation and prices are linked together. They go up and they go up. That's not exactly, it's a little more nuanced than that, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think the nuance is it depends on what type of uh, U.S. household you are. Um, if you're a household that owns your home on a fixed rate mortgage, property price increase, property price you know, appreciation, inflation, rent inflation doesn't really affect you, right? And that's a huge part of your budget. Now, if you're a renter or you're someone trying to buy and you have to buy because maybe you have to move to a city because you got a job there, right? that's going to weigh pretty heavily on you. That's going to be a pretty big impact on your budget. Um, if you're, again, like we saw this for a long time, we talked about the used car market. If you were someone who couldn't afford a new car and you need to buy a used car, you were paying a lot of money for that. Um, if you're someone whose household consumes lots of energy, uh, maybe you have a lot of little rugrats running around, um, you, you're you're subject to a lot more inflation than say uh, a, a childless couple or you know, a single person living at home or, or just a couple with one kid, you know? Um, so the, the, these, these price changes affect people differently. You know, it also depends on where you shop, like certain retailers are going to see higher price increases than others because of how they source their supply chains. So, you know, if you shop at Costco, maybe it's, uh, when you're in that demographic, you're, you're not so affected. And I think that's sort of, you know, where we might lose track as, as policymakers up here in DC is we're in a particular kind of bubble. Most of us are homeowners. Most of us do buy from Costco. 
you know, most of us are fairly insulated from a lot of the costs that uh, a lot of Americans outside of these big cities uh, are dealing with. And we have to sort of keep that in mind. And I understand, you know, why there's some, some angst there and why there's desire to bring that back down. You know, again, the trade-off was, did you want to be working, right, and have a job and not be out of work? Or do we want to face these high prices? I would take the higher prices as, as, a, as a choice every day over, over leaving people long-term unemployed. And just, I think that destroys families far more than, you know, what I hope is, you know, maybe another year of dealing with price changes that are coming down, but still elevated. And maybe we get back to normal next year, right? Yeah. If that's the choice that, that I'm, I'm happy with the temporary pain there. Yeah. Jericho Hill, but, our economist friend. Uh, breaking this down so even I can understand it. We're going to take a quick break. We come back on Hartel. We'll get into more of this economic stuff. We'll get into the politics of it. It is an election year. I'm going to ask him a little bit of rapid fire, see what an economist thinks about some of the campaign lingo that we're going to be hearing over the next couple of months. Jericho Hill on Hartel right after. Welcome back to Hurtel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. That's Jericho Hill, our economist buddy, uh, in the fancy dancy graphic print t-shirt, because that's what all the economists are wearing these days. Uh, Let me Jer- bust out my tariff shirt sometime that we got a uh, Senator Orrin Hatch to wear. Scott <laughs> Lennoncom would love it. Yeah, the late the late Senator Orrin Hatch. God bless him. Mm-hmm. Uh, great Twitter follow, by the way. I uh, don't think his replacement will be nearly as fun. No. <laughs> um, uh, let's let's talk economy for just a second. This is an election year, so I want to ask you a couple of things. Since yep. you're the economist and I'm not, I just want I'm going to throw you some of the buzzwords we're going to hear because let's be honest, this is the eighth or ninth most important election of my lifetime uh, to be followed by the tenth <laughs> most important election of the lifetime next week. We hear the exact. Same, I agree with you on that. I am with you a hundred percent. Yeah, we hear the same economic terminology every election. So I'm just going to ask you how they land with you when you hear them on a campaign ad. Um, You're there in Northern Virginia, so I'm sure your airwaves are all campaign commercials right now. It's pretty brutal where I'm at. Um, So let's hit a couple of these real quick. But Um, just be glad you're not in Georgia. Uh, we, our friend uh, Jason Downey just had him on the program talking about it. And he said, you know, there is nothing but campaign ads right now. I was just talking to a radio buddy. He was like, yeah, I hate it. He's like, all my commercials on the radio station, but it's paying the bills. We paid the whole quarter off in one ad buy. Thank you club for growth. Um, anyway, uh, let's hit some of these items. Okay. When you hear a campaign talk about lower taxes, how does that hit your economic ears? Because a Congressman, a Senator, even a governor they don't really have a whole lot of say over tax policy, but each and every one of them always campaign on tax policy. How does it hit your economic ears when you hear that on a commercial? They can campaign on what their state and local locality can control, which is typically uh, uh, sales tax or property tax, right? Uh, some states have income taxes, but not very many. Um, you know, I would say um, we're dealing with inflation right now. So sort of the last thing we need to really do is to uh, do a, a, a uh, a tax decrease, which will put more money uh, back into the economy at a time we're trying to take money out of the economy and slow price growth. Uh, you know, I, I get it. I get wanting to, to have lower taxes for folks, especially folks that might be hurting. But right, that could that could backfire. That could send inflation up. But then again, maybe these governors don't care about that because the inflation is Biden's problem. It's that's it, not the governor's problem. Yeah. Speaking of inflation, every election I've ever had, it is 
uh, Reaganomics, the Clinton economy, the Bush economy, the Bush recession, uh, the Obama recession. You see where I'm going with this. It's always like this. The Trump tax cuts, whatever. So now we're going to deal with the Biden economy, the Biden inflation. When you hear that terminology, because we hear it every election year, whoever's in the chair, they get blamed for the economy. How does that hit your economic years? Um, a lot of what we're dealing with are were things outside of our control in the in the country because we were dealing with a you know worldwide pandemic, so it's somewhat unfair to pin it all on, on Biden's policies. But it's also fair to pin a bit of it on him. And I think that, you know, especially like you know, hey, they they wanted to get a lot of money they right into the economy to basically make sure the unemployment got back uh, to low levels that that folks that we had, um, and that's the consequence. And so they made policy choices that that created the inflation too that helped bring it along. So they deserve part of the, the blame on this, not all of it, but but part of it. But hey, that's the brakes of being the guy in charge. Another one that's the brakes of the guy in charge because it is a lagging indicator, no matter what anybody else tells you about gas prices. Uh, now, obviously, there's a there's a caveat to this one because the president campaigned on reducing fossil fuels. That means they reduce output, they reduce plenty. So that some of that is on him. But there was the war on Ukraine that's going to crank things up. When you hear about gas prices and the, we're going to fix the gas prices and the Biden did that stickers on all the gas pumps I keep seeing all over the place. How does that hit your economic years? I mean, look, this is sort of the two-faced nature of politics, right? You said Biden, you know, was, you know, campaigning for cleaner energy. He was to to sort of reduce our reliance on gas-powered cars and whatnot and bring in more electrified vehicles. That clearly was a policy choice. That would imply that we'd have less capacity for, for gas, and that would be a, a, an upward pressure on prices. And then, you know, they also want to release a bunch of oil barrels from our strategic reserve to lessen that, which sort of goes against the um, policy choice. Again, like, Maybe it's bad politics, but you know when you and I talk, like I just feel like owning what the what what your goal is and stating clearly what the trade-offs are to that you're going to get to the goal. So hey, we want cleaner vehicles, we want a cleaner environment, uh, we want to reduce our reliance on gas, we want to reduce our reliance on Russian energy. Good goals. Guess what? There are consequences to that. Yeah. I, again, like you know. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, two thirds, you know, world phenomena, one third Biden's to blame, you know, like he's got to own some of it. Yeah. I just, I just wish that we could be more honest about this. Yeah. Here's one that we need to be more honest about that we talk about every single time. I'm going to bring back manufacturing jobs. Now, I always would love for one enterprising reporter to ask them when they're going to bring back tooling and ball bearings because you're not having any manufacturing in the country until we bring those two things back. And we don't do those in America anymore because you got to have that to have the bigger manufacturing. But when you hear manufacturing, that's a big thing in economics because of the indicators for it. It's something that America has declined in doing, and we import it more than we export it. How do you hear we're going to bring back those manufacturing jobs? I mean, look, the developed world has moved those jobs to the developing world. Uh, that was a choice set made by pretty much every country. Um, the leading edge industries are not manufacturing and, and will not be. Those are not manufacturers, not the driver of growth anymore. It used to be, but the world and the economy changed. I would hope that our policymakers who want to keep the U.S. focused on delivering those drivers of economic growth to produce jobs, both high skill and low skill down the line, you know, in these emerging technologies, you know, in these emerging, you know, industries, that's where we, that would be good policy. So like I, I, I get for the industrial workers in say West Virginia, Right. You, you have, you know, coal, we're not, coal's not coming back. Like 
you know, auto manufacturing to like what it was in the 80s is not coming back. And politicians should just simply be honest about that. And we should work to sort of think about how do we shift our job training? How do we shift our educational system to produce workers that will thrive in that new economy? And thinking 10, 20 years down the road, look, I... 20 years ago, I was working, I mean, you had the, you had, you know, your guests from the, from the, from the board of education. I was a student member of the board of regents of the state of Georgia. I was pushing for policies that would increase funding for our community colleges and small local colleges in Georgia, because their infrastructure, their, what they had available in the classrooms for, for students to learn was just paltry. And that's where a lot of our, you know, sort of, um, um, skilled jobs, not necessarily college educated, but skilled trade jobs um, and, and, and whatnot where, where, you know, where folks would go to get their, 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 their associate's degree or their, their training or their tradesmanship, you know, and we weren't funding that and, and we should. So, so yeah, let, let's think about what, uh, what the world's going to look like in 10, 20 years, what these emerging technologies are and figure out how to, how to get those companies here, how to create them. Let's, uh, Let's do what we should do. Let's take the wave, the visa requirements for all the smart people from Russia to get them to, to, to leave that country and come over here to the land of opportunity. Let's open up that can. Of, let's open up that, that can to, to everybody. And let's just bring the bright people over here. Let's bring the energetic and industrial people over and have them start companies, right? Immigrants start companies at rates far higher here in the U.S. than native born folks do. And those are the folks that we want to have because they're going to create the jobs of the future. Yeah, it's another topic for another day, something we're working on for a future episode. But that labor gap, hmm, it's almost identical to the drop in immigration over the last two years. Isn't it funny how that works out? Uh, anyway, we'll talk about that in a future episode. One billion folks, Americans, it unites both left pundits and right pundits. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> let's let's open that can of worm another day, shall we? All right, here a couple more of these real quick though, because it is campaign season. We hear the same things over and over and over again. Uh, housing is starting to creep into campaign ads. I've actually seen some affordable housing ads. You never used to see those. I'm wow. for it, but the problem here is who makes it affordable? Because we all know when the government goes to make something affordable, it usually doesn't really end up being affordable. Uh, let's talk a minute. It's something I know you spend a lot of time thinking and digging into, but I've actually seen a couple campaign ads. They ran one in West Virginia about um, they did a block grant for the whole state to get rid of blighted houses all at once because it makes it a lot cheaper to do, you know, because you yep. pay for 100 houses instead of 10. Smart yep. policy, I think. Uh, so credit to them. But I'm actually seeing some housing policies show up in campaign ads. You wouldn't have seen that 10 years ago. How does that hit your economic years? I mean, housing is the single biggest budget item in most families, most families budget. Um, we should focus on that if we want families to, to be better off. So, yes, I do a lot of work locally on trying to help expand housing supply. There's a lot of opportunities to do that. You know, here what we do is we, we like giving homeowners, uh, property owners options. Uh, I live in an area where um, you can build a single family house. You can also build a duplex if you want or a triplex. Um, you can build a tiny home out back. We call that an ADU or accessory dwelling unit. Uh, you could turn your basement into a grandma, you know, suite, live in an apartment and rent that out. You know, and those, those are options right there that I'm, that I'm saying. Those are options that local governments can, can enact. They just require a zoning change, possibly, or just a, a little you know, local policy change. But the local government doesn't expend any money to do it. And local governments are cash strapped. Other things that I've seen local governments do is they've said, look, 
Um, we're not going to tell you how to build this new apartment complex, right? But if you want to have your, if you want to have a six-story complex rather than a four-story complex, um, we'd like for you to put X number of units and designate them affordable based on our affordability guidelines. And then we'll give you the, the variance to, to build up higher. You know, like local governments can't really fund this, right? Um, they have to just basically provide the incentives for folks to do it on their own. Um, and so I, I agree with, with Andrew, like we've had experience of like, you know, look, we, we built section eight housing a long time ago in this country. Right. And we, we, we concentrated low income families into the same area. Uh, and that had uh, consequences that were not good for those low income families. And now we're seeing a lot more mixed use planning and development, mixed income development, which, which based on the research, you know, has better financial outcomes uh, for those lower income persons, better financial stability, better household stability. So, you know, things that we can do for that, but it's not gonna really come from a federal level, right? The federal government can't dictate zoning. That's a local thing. It's gonna have to come from local folks saying, look, um, we, 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 want, we want people who have lived in this area to continue to live here, right? And we need to help that make that affordable, give them options. We want to have a diverse set of people, young and old, being able to live here. So we need to have a diverse set of housing options for them, um, you know, and try to try to work change locally. But you're also going to have to do that without um, you're going to need developers. You're going to need a private sector because local governments can't afford this. Yeah. Jericho Hill, our economist buddy, he joins us frequently, always working face, never as a heel. Uh, appreciate you, sir. Until we get you back <laughs> on Herdtel again, let folks know where they can follow you on your social media oh, and the writing in your Substack. I'm just waiting to do a Hollywood Hogan heel turn on Andrew in a few months. Okay. I did it for the money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the third man. Uh, yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Motoconomist. Uh, now that my health is returning, I'll probably restart my Substack and talk about housing policy issues there. Of course, you'll find me. I will try to write more articles, as I always promise, for Ordinary Times. I love the site. I love the people on there. Um, and as always, I, you know, I'm on Twitter as Motoconomist as well, and always happy to talk to folks about econ, uh, you know, issues and housing and things like that. Yep. You're the best, buddy. I appreciate you. We'll have you back hey, again soon. You're appreciate pretty good, man. No problem. Bye-bye. Bye. tell these stories just burn me up uh we talk all the time on here why we do what we do and how we do it on her tell we turn down the noise we get to the information uh we do that because the most important thing you can do when you're dealing with media and stories in the media is your own discernment and it's something that is an acquired skill set you got to work at even the best you do with it you're sometimes fall because there's a lot of nonsense out there but discernment's really really important and it pays to be discerning when it comes to things like charity. We talk a lot about charity on this show. Our final segment every week is usually somebody doing something charitable, if not outright charity work. We do that on purpose. We want to highlight the good of what humans being out there are doing because it gets really easy to get down in the hole of all the dark stuff because we got to cover politics and culture, which, let's face it, oftentimes don't bring out the best in folks. This person, however pretty despicable uh ktvu that's out in the bay area san jose california a south bay woman who pretended to have cancer and raised more than a hundred thousand dollars in donations was sentenced in federal court to five years in prison 
Turned out she didn't have cancer at all. Amanda Christine Riley raised $105,000 from at least 349 separate people claiming on social media and her blog that she was fighting Hodgkin's lymphoma. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of California said in a statement on Tuesday after the sentencing, Riley pled guilty last year to one count of wire fraud for taking donations from people over a seven-year period to help her pay for cancer treatments she never needed nor received. She never had cancer. Beginning in 2012, Riley, who was then living in San Jose, began posting about needing to pay for medical care. To maintain her deception, she had shaved her head to make it appear as if she was receiving chemotherapy, falsified medical records, and forged physician letters and medical certifications, prosecutors said. She deposited the donations into her personal bank accounts and used the funds to pay her living expenses, authorities said. In 2019, an investigation by the Internal Revenue Service and the San Jose Police Department uncovered the fraud, which wasn't super hard because cancer, you either got it or you don't. Um, And she was arrested the following year in 2020. The judge also ordered Riley to pay restitution for those who donated in the amount of $105,513 and a three-year period of supervision following her release from prison. Why do we bring this up? Well, if somebody's just going to outright lie to this level, it's kind of hard to tell what's going on. But anytime you see something online, it's usually not super hard to verify what's going on. And even if you can't verify the story, you can do a little quick digging into the person, whether they're legitimate or not. Now, I've done it too on social media. Somebody's doing a fundraising for this, that, or the other, or GoFundMe, or whatever the case may be, and I'll share it. And I try my best usually to check into it at least a little bit, if nothing else, find out who else is sharing it. If people that are of good faith that you know have good reputations are backing somebody or vouching for somebody, that's one way you can go with. And then, of course, you can always Google search and dig into the actual people themselves in this modern age. That's not hard to do. It doesn't take you anything but a few minutes of your time to dig into these things before passing them along. And you can't always catch all the thieving, unworthy schemers. Uh, There's people out there just flat out lie and they take people in. We get caught too. Just put your hand up and say, I got burned on that one and move along. But it never hurts to take a few extra minutes, whether it's a news story or unfortunately people claiming charity to vouch and find out whether they're actually what they claim to be. Trust but verify has never let anybody down yet. So even though we want to promote charity, this is something we just have to do. And in fact, if you really care about causes that need help and making sure the absolute river of money that Americans and other people around the world give to charitable causes, which is an amazing thing, we want to make sure those all get funneled to good people. And that means we have to have discernment to sort out the bad ones. And when we find a bad one, they need to do exactly what they did here. Punish them to the fullest extent of the law. Make sure folks know that this is unacceptable in our society, because it ought to be. Cancer is a wicked, horrible thing. We don't need people faking it. There's plenty of people out there that need the help for real. More Hertel right after this. Yeah, welcome back to Hertel. You know we always end on a bit of a happier note, or at least try to. Uh, so when Paul David Houston and David Hal Evans rolled into Ukraine, into Kiev, down into the metro station to play an acoustic guitar set, that's not normally what you might find playing in a subway station. Number one, because it's a war zone, people are sheltering in place down there. Even though Kiev's lifted a little bit, it's still symbolic that that's where the people hit out 
and tried to survive the Russian bombardment, but these aren't your normal peddling musicians down in the subway because that's Bono and the Edge of the band U2. They went into Kiev, they went to Ukraine at the invitation of, of Vladimir Zelensky and played a set um, from Rolling Stone following a personal invitation from the Ukrainian president. Bono and the Edge from U2 visited Kiev to perform an acoustic concert in one of the city subway stations that had turned into a bomb shelter. The people of Ukraine are not fighting just for your own freedom. You're fighting for all of us who love freedom, Bono told the audience, which included soldiers and a contingent of press. We pray you will enjoy some of that peace soon, along with the Irish Times. The set included performances of U2 hits like With or Without You, Desire, Angel of Harlem, Vertigo, and a rendition of Benny King's Stand By Me that replaced the titular me with Ukraine. Throughout the intimate set, U2 duo were joined on stage by makeshift uh, Ukrainian musicians thrust into military duty, mostly still wearing their uniforms due to the Russian invasions. Uh, Bono also penned a poem about the Ukrainian invasion that was read by U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi for some reason that I don't care to get into, think about, or dwell on. Nevertheless, good for Bono and the Edge for going to Ukraine, playing a show, and bringing awareness. Bono's done tons and tons of charity work over the years for many, many different causes. Uh, so good on them. That'll do it for her. Tell continue, if you would please, to make sure that you are subscribed on whatever way you're enjoying Herd Tell, uh, whether it's on the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you are listening, or specifically on the YouTube page. Make sure you're subscribing on there. We got a lot of good stuff on there. There's the uh, playlist of all the good talks. There's a playlist of all the twice on Sundays. We have the long form podcast. There's 36 of those deep dives into specific subjects. Make sure you're checking out each and every one of those. We work really hard on them. We think you'll enjoy them. The feedback from y'all has been fantastic. The numbers are up. We're not big on numbers other than paying attention to make sure you're out there because if you're not out there listening, we ain't got nobody to talk to. This is a partnership. We appreciate it. Furthermore, you have a good say in what we talk about here on Herdtel. Reach out. Show at gmail.com. Send us an email. Keep your bearing. Be nice about it. Uh, or if you don't want to be nice, send us the hate mail. Might even read that. Uh, might make it on the show. You never know. Also, show at the Twitter. If you want to reach out that way and or keep track of what's going on. Twitter account's a great way to keep up as well because we post all the new postings for the YouTube and the podcast pages there along with the links and what's such there. So until we talk to you again, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. And wherever you and yours are, we'll see you again soon. Right back here on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.